0: Now uh, This is a, a, a heavy theological text that we're looking at this morning. So it's not going to be one of those messages where you go home and say, wow, that was just, you know, so encouraging. That just, that just set my soul ablaze. So I, I, I want to just t- talk to our teenagers. So we've got two of them right here in the front. She said, oh, my goodness, I'm walking right down here, so I'm going to be on center stage. Why is there sin in this world? So we all are going to have to deal with this somehow, that I've got something in my life called sin, and that because of that, one day I'm going to face God. And he's going to say, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Because that is the only payment for sin. So there's a solidarity that all humans share. So when I'm talking to the teenagers and I'm talking to you adults this morning, we have got a commonality, don't we? We're all messed up. We're in this together. And I can't point my finger at anybody and say, I am better than you. And no one can you. None of you can. We all have to look at our own hearts and say, what do I need to do with my sin problem? What has God done to fix my sin problem? So that takes it sort of out of this theoretical, theological debate that this passage has been in for centuries down to the very core of what we all agree and what we all understand is that Jesus Christ is a representative for every one of us. And I don't deserve his goodness. I don't deserve his mercy. I don't deserve his grace. But he went to the cross for all people. Let's make no mistake. The atonement is not limited for just a certain sect of people. If we take Romans 5.18 seriously, therefore as through one man's offense, what happened to all men, Judgment came to all men. Without exception, Adam's offense affected every single one of us. And this is condemnation. That men love darkness rather than light. That's condemnation. It's not because that Adam forces you and I to sin. We sin willfully and we love our sin, and we enjoy our sin. Even so through one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ was tempted and tested in every single thing that you will ever be tempted with. And Jesus Christ never sinned once. Here was a man hanging on a cross... They had nails driven into his wrist, nails driven into his heels, lacerations on his back, pushing up for a breath just to gasp and to say, Father, forgive them. That was you and I. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. I am making a way of escape they will just turn to me and ask me. I will forgive them. One man's righteous act to all men. So both those all's, if we are all sinners, then Jesus Christ also died for all men. You can't have it both ways. Resulting in justification to life. Now, I'm going to get kind of heavy here with some history. So bear with me. If you're not a historian and you don't like to listen to this, I'm sorry, but I've got to help us put this passage in perspective because it is a very, very difficult passage. I, 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 I I have been wrestling with this ever since I began Romans one, one, because I knew I was going to have to face this difficult passage of scripture. It starts out with the word therefore, and even that's a difficult. How? What is the therefore referring back to? I think Paul is anticipating the question, how can one man's death forgive the entire ungodly race that is God's enemies? How in the world can that work? And so I think what Paul is doing, he's he's reminding them, hey, As a Jewish people, as a Jewish mindset, we have a collectivism. In the Western world, we're so individualistic. We don't see collective holes. That's not an Eastern way of thinking, especially the ancient Near East. They saw collective holes. And you can see this through the prophets. You go to the book of Amos. And it says, for two and three transgressions of Damascus, I will not relent. And he goes on and he tells what several individuals do, but the collective city of Damascus is all responsible for that sin. He does the same thing with the Moabites, the same thing with the Philistines, the same things with the Israelites, and the same thing with the Judeans. They were all a collective whole. And so he's saying, hey, this is nothing new. If Adam is looked on as a collective whole, then we can look at Jesus also as a human representative for the collective whole. That's why I think the the therefore is here. So this passage, I believe, teaches that even before we are able to understand the difference between right and wrong, we are sin-stained people. The Bible informs us that every person will spend the rest of eternity either in the presence of God or in hell, separated from God. This is for eternity. This is the good news this morning. The good news is that God did not abandon us in our fallen state at the very moment that we needed Christ the most. While we were yet sinners, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Perhaps for a righteous person, some might say, I'll die for him. Or for adventure, supposing for a good man, somebody might even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for every one of us in this room. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the good news. God doesn't leave us there. Jesus was fully God, fully righteous, but he was also fully man as our representative. And he took what was his enemy and he reconciled us to God by his death. Much more being reconciled, we will be saved by his life. This text is difficult for another reason. It has been interpreted in the light of a historian named Augustine. He was a 5th century Catholic monk. And there was a debate between Pelagius and Augustine about this passage of Scripture. Pelagius taught that man has no sin nature, but every man will be accountable for when he sins. Now Augustine opposed him, and Augustine taught, not only does man have a sin nature, but man is also born guilty, born guilty of Adam's sin. Now, we never read that in this text, did we? It never said that. But Augustine extrapolated that from this passage and implied it. Augustine, you got to understand his background. Before Augustine converted to Catholicism, Augustine had been in a sect called the Manichaeans. The Manichaeans were steeped in Neoplatonic philosophy. They were steeped in Greek Stoicism. The Stoics believed that everything, every single minute detail was predestined and predetermined. And you had no free will whatsoever. And that was a part of Augustine's background. He was in this Manichaean sect before he converted to Christianity. The Manichaeans were also steeped into fatalism. The Manichaeans taught a form of Gnosticism as well, that the soul was trapped in this evil body. Dualism is what Gnosticism is. So you are in a physical body, and that body is just awful, and you're just trapped in it. And the only way you can get out of it is if you are somehow supernaturally enlightened against your will. And it was called gnosis, or gnosis, or knowledge. And that's what the Gnostics taught, that you were trapped in this body of evil, and you had to get to a higher plane of spirituality, so sort of mystically or supernaturally. You couldn't explain it. And so this is the background of Augustine when he approached the Bible. Unfortunately, many, many of our reformers also were well-versed in Augustinian theology. They immersed themselves in it because Augustine was really the first serious theologian in the Catholic Church. And all of our reformers came out of the Catholic Church, and particularly Martin Luther. Martin Luther was actually an Augustinian monk, so he studied Augustine in depth. Augustine, highly influenced. In fact, if you read John Calvin's Institutes of Theology, he quotes Augustine more than any other theologian, so Calvin's influence goes back to Greek mythology and Greek Manichaeanism as a result of Augustine. Zwingli did not uh, waver at all from Augustine, nor did John Knox in Scotland. These reformers, all of them uniformly interpreted Romans 5.12 in the teaching, in the teaching of Augustine, which incorporated theistic determinism. By theistic determinism it means that man really has no will at all, but everything he thinks and even when he sins, God decreed that man to sin because they were so careful to guard the sovereignty of God. These men weren't evil. These men weren't wicked. They weren't trying to imply that our God and our Creator has a malicious and malignant side. They were trying to preserve the sovereignty and the omniscient of God but sovereignty never even biblically means that God meticulously determines every single event. In fact, we know that from the book of James, that when you are tempted, you cannot say that God decreed that to temptation because God never tempts anyone with evil. We know also that the, from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, that all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of man, it is not from the Father. It's not from God. But God is in control. That's what sovereignty means. Sovereignty means that God is in control of everything. It doesn't mean that God is controlling. I am sovereign in a little bit sense in my home. I want to control what goes on but I am not controlling. I have a my my wife has a a a will that she desires for Brendan to clean up his room. And when she goes into his room and his room is a mess, he defied her his, her sovereign will. You might say to speak. And that is what God has done. God his number 1 ethic is love. That is the number one ethic of the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is likened to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm borrowing this from Ravi Zachariah. I'm not that smart. And Ravi said, the only way that you can have love is to have a free moral agent who chooses to love in return. If I had some kind of magic potion that I took up to my took with me up to Fort Yukon, and I saw this beautiful blonde-haired girl, I thought, how am I ever going to win her favor? She's going to look at this guy and say, what do I want to do with him? Well, I know how I'm going to get her to like me. I'll drop some of this magic potion in her drink, and then she's just going to fall manly in love with me. Now, did she really love me? Absolutely not. She had no choice. Instead, I charmed her, and she does really love me. (laughs) And I thank God that she really loves me that I have a genuine relationship with her. And that's what God wants with every one of you. I ran a long rabbit trail from Augustine and Neoplatonic philosophy. (laughs) But some people read Augustinian Calvinism into Romans 5, and they insist that it means that we are guilty because of Adam's sin. The text only states that death spread to all men because all sin. Now, that is a very difficult phrase in chapter 5, verse 12. Because all sinned. Now, Paul could have made it very clear if he wanted to. He could have put the words in Adam, but he didn't. So we are not sinners because we are in Adam here. Now, he's going to get down and say that Adam made us sinners later on. But this is the key verse here. I think that this verse is teaching that we all sin in our own due course. All will sin in their own due course. That doesn't mean that we don't have a tendency, a a propensity. evil. That's not what I'm saying, but we will all sin in our due course. I think that's what this verse is teaching us. Now I want to get back to the ancient Jewish culture and the ancient Jewish mindset, because this is going to help us with so many difficult passages in the book of Romans and in particularly Ephesians chapter one, where it says that we are elected before the foundation of the world in Christ to be holy. The ancient Hebrews, they understood the corporate identity completely. To them, the notion of a corporate election was simply taken for granted. If you were a child of Abraham, physical descendant of Abraham, you automatically thought of yourself as the elect body of the Jewish people. That's the Text. that's the context, that's the historical context of the Bible. So when Paul says that we are elected in Christ, we are identifying with our headship in Jesus Christ, just as the Jews identified themselves in the elected corporate body of Abraham's descendants. Those in the ancient Eastern world never thought of themselves as isolated personalities or a mass of separate individuals. This is Western thinking. And Augustine was a Western thinker. Pelagius also was a Western thinker. John Calvin and Knox and all these men were Westernized and they approached the Bible not through the lenses of an ancient Near Eastern, but they approached the Bible through the eyes of a Catholic monk who was influenced by Greek philosophy, which also was Western in its orientation. So Paul in this passage is corporately arguing that we have two respective heads, that our, they are our universal representatives. Adam is your universal representative just as Christ is our universal representative, both of them. Now, Paul uses this kind of thinking when he's addressing the resurrection. Paul uses this corporate thinking in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, when Paul teaches that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of all those who died in Christ. He is the first fruits. He is the representative. Corporately, for everybody who has already died in Jesus. The word first fruits is such a Jewish idea. We don't even think that way. But in the Jewish agricultural society, the first fruits was an insurance, it was a down payment, it was a guarantee that all of the harvest was going to come in. So Jesus is the first fruits. So if you are in Jesus and he's been raised from the dead, he will raise you with him. That is the Jewish thinking here when he talks about first fruits. But Christ is the first fruits from the dead of those that have slept. For since by man, Adam, came death. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. By man, came also the resurrection of the dead. And this is where Paul gets very, very specific. He says, for as in Adam all died. Every one of us are in Adam. He is our representative. That's why every one of us died. In Adam all died. That's what he says. Even so, here's the parallel, in Christ shall all be made alive. These two parallels define our corporate identities. The term first fruit is significant. It's used to ensure that the corporate body of all those who are in Christ will certainly rise because of their union with Jesus. Paul's point is inescapable. Just as it is inevitable that we share in the death and the sinfulness of one man, we also share in the resurrection and the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ. Now many theologians have swung to the other side of the pendulum and they argue that our association with Adam's sin is simply unjust. And again, they do this to protect the integrity of God. They're not being malicious with Scripture. They think they are well-intended, but I think they are... In air, partially because they tend to read the Bible through Western individualistic perspective instead of the ancient Near East perspective that sees a collective whole that we are all in Adam. But more importantly, I think they don't consider deeply the opposite principle of our representative head that also works whereby sinners can be constituted as righteous through their being in Christ but we've got to keep a balance in all of this we are not teaching universalism when we say that we are all in Christ to be raised we must personally listen to me we must personally ratify the work of our of Christ in our life by responding to his gospel call through repentance And what I mean by repentance, it is not a work, it's not an act, it is simply changing your mind. Metanoia is the Greek word to repent, and it means I stop thinking myself as a good person. I see myself as a sinner who needs a Savior. It is faith alone that saves you. Repenting doesn't save anybody. I know a lot of people who will admit, yes, I'm a sinner. I am wicked. But they will never submit and believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But before we're ever in need of a Savior, we've got to acknowledge that, yes, I am lost. And that's how simple salvation is. And we've got to ratify His finished work. And the same thing is true of Adam. I might be a sinner by nature. I might be a sinner by my own. But I must... Let me just get back to my notes. I don't even know what I'm rambling about here. here. <laughs> in a similar way, we must personally ratify the work of Adam in our life. Now, how do I personally ratify what Adam did? I do it when I become knowledgeable between right and wrong. And I willfully choose to do what is wrong. Then I ratify what Adam has already done. Now, the Bible, I think, supports this that children do not have a knowledge of right and wrong until they come to that age where they understand the difference. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 139. Let me give you the historical context of Deuteronomy 139. The spies go in and they look at the land, right? The promised land, and they see these huge walls. They say, man, we can't get into that city. And the people, they're giants. We can't fight those giants. And so they, in unbelief, turn around and say, we're going to just walk out here. No, worse than that, we're going to go back to Egypt. Now, what did God say about the children? Let's listen to it carefully. Deuteronomy 139. This is what the Bible says. And, this is God speaking, and as for your little ones... Who you said would become a prey they'll just get- vic- they'll be victims in this land if we go over this border. your children who today who have no knowledge of good or evil, do you hear what God says about our children? Our children, when they are young, they have no knowledge of good or evil i'm not don't argue with me, argue with the word of God <laughs> now, that doesn't mean our kids are not naturally sinners they're i mean they'll they'll cry when they don't need anything. You know, they, they're spoiled little dickens when they come into this world. I had five of them, six of them. She had six of them. They, But this is what the Bible goes on to say. They shall go in and possess the promised land. To them, I will give it, and they will possess it, Deuteronomy one thirty one thirty nine. And I'm going to quote again from Ezekiel 18.19. As for the father, because he care, cruelly oppressed, the father spoiled his brothers by violence. He did that which was not good among his people. Lo, even he will die in his iniquity. Yet you say, well, why doesn't the Son have to bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son does what is lawful and right, and he's kept my statutes, and he's done them, he will surely live. The soul that sins shall die. Everywhere, you look everywhere in the Bible, and God holds every one of us personally responsible for Jesus said this in John 15, 19. He says, if I had not spoken to you, you would have no excuse for your sin. And then he said, if I had not done the miracles that no one else could have done, you would have no excuse for your sin. John concludes his gospel. He says, Jesus did so many miracles in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we can't punt. We can't kick it back to Adam, as some people would like to do, and say, well, it was all his fault. I was born in a corpse-like state, and I had no choice and no ability to respond to God. That is not what the Bible is teaching. We are balanced, though. We must maintain that the Bible teaches man is innately sinful. I believe the Bible teaches that Jeremiah seventeen nine. make it no mistake. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. But the Bible also teaches us that God is long-suffering. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 and following. So God had flooded the world because the intentions of man's heart were only evil continually. That's our nature. That was man's nature. And God flooded the earth. But after the flood, Noah brought the clean animals before God. And God smelled that aroma coming up to him. And it pleased God, but it also saddened God's heart. Even though God knows what we're like, God was empathetic with our need. Let me read the the verses for you so you can get the context here. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing of the aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now listen to the reason why. Why is God going to do that? And the word for, it's translated for, but that little Hebrew word is pronounced "key," and it's key to understanding this verse, actually. And the idea of that word for means although or in spite of. You can look it up in any Hebrew lexicon. And so what God is saying, I'm not going to curse the ground again. Even though or for the intentions Of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's what God says. And God is not going to destroy the earth again, even in spite that he sees that. Why? Because our God is long-suffering. If God is long-suffering, what is he long-suffering for if it isn't for our decision to trust him? It makes absolutely no sense if man has lost his ability to choose to receive Jesus by faith. There's no need to be long suffering is there i I get a passionate, I'm sorry, but this is be a berean if you, you you know anyway this is where I'm going with this. This verse says that I will not destroy the earth again. there will be seed time and harvest and cold in winter, until I come to finish this earth off. And Peter picks up on this very thing about the flood. But what this verse is teaching us is that man, by his nature, is a sinner. From the time that he acts with his conscious awareness to sin, at that point, he becomes accountable for his own sin before God, and God is forbearing, hoping that grace and mercy will bring us to saving faith and Peter picks up on the flood theme in 2nd Peter 3 9 and he says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises some of the reformers taught from this passage that man is born in a corpse-like state unable to respond to even God's appeals to be reconciled this goes all the way back to Augustine's fatalistic Manichaean influences This is nowhere stated in the Bible or in this text. So let us come to this passage with abject humility. And I tried to do that to the best of my ability this week. I just came before God. I said, God, I don't understand a lot of this. And God, if I get it wrong, I know I'll be under your judgment. This is James not to be a teacher. If you're going to teach something that's in error. And if I have taught something in there, I'll come back and I will redact it. But God, I want to come to this passage with humility. I don't want to come up with my blinders on and my theological background that I've been taught in seminary. I want to know what God's Word tells me. And that's the way we've got to approach all the Bible. And not just willing to be taught, but God, I want to live it out. I want it to change my heart. I want it to make me love my Savior even more. So I'm going to point out four universal effects. So if you're a note taker, this will help you Four universal effects of Adam's sin. Four of them. The first thing that happened when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. It's the Greek word cosmos. So the world here is not just creation. In fact, it's not particularly talking about creation. Our trees, our rivers, our mountains, sin didn't enter into that. It entered into the cosmos, and it means that humanity, it entered into the sea of people, humanity. And not only that, it entered into our world system, the way we do things in our world, it's all corrupted by sin. All we have to do is watch 15 minutes of a news broadcast of what's going on in America or around the world, and we know that sin has infiltrated this cosmos, this world. It's interesting also that he uses the word cosmos. He doesn't use a word for universe. Sin was already in the universe. The devil had already sinned. The devil had already said, I will be like God. I will lift my throne up. I will be like the Most High. And that is the heart of rebellion and sin. is the unwillingness to submit to God. And Satan had already done that. He was a sinner from the beginning. 1 John 3 8. So it was already in the universe. There was already a cosmic battle, but it became into the realm of humanity through Adam. Now, what else has happened to the world? The world has been drastically changed. The, as the world lives in opposition to God. 1 John 2 15, I've already quoted that. We live in a world where the God of this age, Satan, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. Again, I've got to ask myself, what is Satan blinding if people are born dead and blind already? He has to be blinding our ability to choose. So there is a cosmic battle going on with an enemy who wants to defeat Christ. So he's not only the God of this age, we're told also in James 4 four to be a friend with this world, that's the world system, the desire for things, the pride of life. You want to be a friend of that, and you make yourself the enemy of God, James 4.4. 4. The second thing that happened, universal effect of Adam's sin, was death came through sin. Every one of us are going to have to face death. That's a sobering thought. I remember when I was y'all's age, I thought I was never going to die. I really did. I thought I was invincible. I would do just stupid stuff in my car, Brendan. I mean, I mean, really stupid. Not as bad as you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I thought I could get away with anything. And now now I go backpacking, I go hiking, and I'm careful about the way I just step over a log because I'm going to twist a knee, and I ain't going to be able to get out of there. I'm getting getting closer and closer to the grave. It is a reality. And I hate death. It's my enemy. Uh, If there was something that we could do. But I think in God's love and God's mercy, you know what he did when man sinned? He kicked him out of the garden so he wouldn't eat from the tree of life so that we would be trapped in these sinful bodies forever. But without death, we wouldn't be longing for God we wouldn't be looking for answers i remember when i was 16 years old and i was looking up into the heavens at the stars and i thought my life is so insignificant and when i die no one's even going to know that i ever even existed what is it all for and those things god was drawing me to himself because god has put eternity in every one of your hearts so death is the enemy, but God uses it to bring us to himself. Death is something that was not meant for man, and it seems unnatural. You talk to somebody who goes to a grave, and it just seems like it is not something that God would want, and God has reversed it. Death by Paul, what he means is a spiritual separation, and it's universal. And then we see this phrase, because all sin. And that's the difficult one. This phrase right here. Some view this to mean that man does not have a sin nature like Pelagius and others have taught, but we will all sin in our own turn. The problem with that is it fails to explain why we universally all choose to sin. If man doesn't have a sin nature. It also doesn't take the context into account that our sin is connected to Adam's transgression. Read the rest of the context and it supports this. Verse 13 For until the law, sin was in the world. There was no law, and yet sin was still in the world because of Adam's sin. It was still here, it's still prevalent. And then verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. It was still reigning. Infants were still dying because we were all somehow still connected to Adam in this corporate view that Paul is talking about. So I don't think I agree with that position that man doesn't have a sin nature, but he will sin in his own turn. But what does it teach then? In light of the teaching of Scripture, I think the best way of seeing this is referring to all men actually sinning as a result of their condition being associated with Adam's corruption. Among all. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, among whom, talking about us before we were saved, among whom... Also, we had our conduct in times past, every one of us, in the lusts of our flesh, we fulfilled the desires of our flesh, we fulfilled the desires of our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as others. The word nature in this context, this is not my opinion. This is from Bowers' words of the New Testament. It means our natural descent passed down from our ancestors. But I am accountable for it the moment I choose to sin. The fourth universal thing. Adam is going to be antithesis. An antithesis a type, but just the opposite. Jesus Christ is going to be a just like Adam in the sense that he's universally representing every one of us, but just on the opposite spectrum for our good. The opposite way. Our solidarity with these two representatives go in opposite directions. Both men through one act. Disobedience on the one hand led to judgment. Obedience, on the other hand, affects us towards righteousness. So those are the four universal effects of Adam's sin. Now I'm going to quickly go through 15 through 17 and talk about four contrasts between these two universal representatives. The first contrast is the effect. There is a the contrast in the effect, Five, seven, uh, five, fifteen. Because wrong chapter verse 15 but the free gift that's one word in greek charisma and it's translated free gift that's almost redundant isn't it it's free because it is a gift it is a gift so that makes, therefore makes it free but it's a powerful word charisma but the free gift is not like the offense para para means alongside pateo means to walk So it literally means to step out of the boundaries. The free gift, the charisma, is not like stepping out of the boundaries. For by the one man's choice to step out of the boundaries, what happened? Many died. Here we have the much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to many. And the many here is talking about all people. So the first effect or the first contrast is in the effect. So the free gift, it is apart from any human merit. That's why it's so different. This gift brings grace to all, divine favor, mercy, kindness, influencing on the soul. Adam's offense, on the other hand, literally to fall outside and to step out of what God had explicitly said for him, Adam deviated from the path of un- by unbelief. It affected us with death. Adam hid when he sinned. Adam tried to cover up. Adam's relationship was broken. Notice that Adam wasn't like a dead corpse. When God came walking through the garden, Adam heard. He knew God, yet he felt embarrassed, he felt shame, and he felt under God's judgment, and he tried to rationalize and cover up all of his sin. And just the opposite effect, our relationship with God is wide open. It is graciously forgiven. The second degree that's different, that corresponds in an opposite way, is the intensity. Look at verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned. So what was the one who sinned? Judgment came from the one who sinned. For the judgment which came, listen to this, the opposite. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses. Can you see the intensity difference here? Many offenses. And this is where the gift is coming from. It's coming out of this in spite of the many offenses, resulted in justification. So what I mean by intensity, judgment for what we deserve results in condemnation. That's simple. We all understand it. It's exactly what we deserve. When you do something wrong, When you violate a law, you expect the verdict to be just. That's all we get when we sin. But look at the intensity of what Christ did. The free gift, it came out of many offenses. In spite of all the sin of the vast humanity, corporately of all of us together, and not only that, out of the many offenses that you and I do every single day, we sin, we sin, we sin before we came to know Jesus. And that's where the free gift came out of, in spite of all of that. So, death reigns by one man, it controls us. We're inescapable from death. In Hebrews 9 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die we cannot escape it it reigns over us it rules over us as much as we try to defy death we'll never do it it also teaches us the oppression of corporate sin in our society in our flesh paul says no good thing dwells the dominion of people's person a personal sin produces dread It produces guilt and it produces fear. Through the fear of death, we were all our lifetime subject to bondage. That was what was reigning over us. But look at the other governing principle. And notice who it's for. It's restrictive. Who is it for? Much more, and here it is it's restricted to those who receive. Abundance of grace, the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. What does life mean? It's much more. Life is multifaceted now for the Christian. Life is abundant. Life is full. In Jesus Christ, we're told, everything was created. Everything that has life was through Jesus. In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. That is the true light, John 1, 9, that lights every single man coming into the world. And Jesus said this, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. And that's what reigns over us. That is our new governing force, is that we've been illuminated, we've got truth. And we know what God is about, and we know what life is about. I'll never forget this. I didn't have an epiphany when I got saved. I didn't have any chill bumps going up and down my arms. There was no lightning, no thunder. I was in my bedroom reading my Bible, and I bowed my knee when I read Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I went to bed that night, and when I went to school, it was like I had a new sense of eyes. And that was my new reigning and rule over my life. I saw things so different. I remember my buddy tried to go out and get me to smoke pot with him. And I told him, I said, I don't need that. I says, I'm on a high right now. And he looked at me like, yeah, you are weird. But I had found Jesus. This was reigning in my life. This was ruling in me. So there's two systems or principles that govern us that are diametrically opposed. The last thing is the degree or the conclusion we are sinners by our solidarity with Adam but we are guilty individually by our decision we are made righteous by an individual decision only based on being in Christ we don't need to set up a false dichotomy that individual faith somehow negates grace There was and is a need for the law, even though we're under grace. So in God's wisdom, he gave the law, verse 20, so that the offenses might abound. You see, earlier Paul said, where there is no law, you can't impute sin. It's probably not the best word to translate that, impute. It's to reckon or to account can't add up transgressions if you don't have a law because you don't know how many violations have happened. We are already sinners because death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's a long span. Probably about 2,000 years and death was still reigning. We're still sinners. But now God gives us the law out of His grace and out of His love so that we can see how desperate we are of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So let's come away with some application today. Application. The world is no friend to the followers of Christ. We have to come out from the world and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. Having, therefore, these precious promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. This world is not our home, hallelujah. I have been crucified with Christ. God forbid that any of us should brag or boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which this world is dead to us. And I am dead to the world. That's our first application. Sin is in this world, but I am not of it. No one can serve two masters. Sin leads us to death and it reigns over us or grace reigns over us and we're under the reigning, ruling righteousness of Jesus Christ as our King. Our old man and Adam has been defeated. Now we need to apply spiritual disciplines. That's Romans 6, 7, and 8. Because it just doesn't happen automatically. And that last thing for the believer. Sin separates us from fellowship from God, but never our relationship. So we need to have self-judgment and to be vigilant in examining Ourselves every day Father this is a profound passage of scripture and I don't think any of us will ever understand it fully